Welcome to Earth to Philosophy, a conversation-based podcast with philosophers working on nature and the environment. Today, Claire and I have two guests, Barbara J. King, Emerita Professor of Anthropology at the College of William and Mary, who is now a freelance science writer, and Laurie Marino, who is a neuroscientist, animal behavior expert, and is currently president of the Whale Sanctuary Project. They'll be speaking with us about their recent collaborative work on octopus intelligence, and for this, we read their article, Octopus Minds Must Lead to Octopus Ethics, in the journal Animal Sentience. This and other links are posted in the show notes. I have a first question, which I think would be a nice um, introduction question anyway. I would really like to know how you both, Barbara and Lori, started working together together and what the kinds of projects you've done together are the yeah the shape of those projects or where you saw work that could overlap and how you've taken advantage of that well we work together when um we i mean at least i feel fortunate enough to work with barbara when issues come up that we both feel strongly about and feel like we have something to contribute to We're both academics. We both take a pretty scholarly approach to advocating for other animals in the environment. Um, We try to take a a more in-depth approach. And so because of that, we we share an approach to to these things that I think, I mean, at least from my point of view, I find really enlightening and, and helpful. And so we've interfaced with each other at times when issues like this octopus issue has come up. And we also don't have, you know, we have uh, different skill sets, different experiences. So we also complement each other in that way as well. Yes, I first became aware of Lori's work because of my background in primate behavior. What attracted me to her work is her strong background in neuroscience that quickly became married with expertise and passion about animal rights. So her work in non-human primate behavior was very crucial to my getting to know what she does and then following her work with the Whale Sanctuary Project, which I just admire. So another example of the ways in which we've worked together centers on the issue of how iguanas are dealt with in Florida. And we both became aware of a project in which the Florida Wildlife and Conservation Commission was encouraging scientists to kill quote unquote invasive iguanas in terribly brutal ways, including bashing them against cars trucks and boats. We became pretty incensed by this and worked together on that project as well to raise awareness of why this was wrong and to raise complexities about how invasive wildlife could be dealt with other than through lethal management. Yeah, that's a good introductory question indeed, Andrea. So of course the main piece of work that, that drew us to the idea of speaking to both of you was the commentary you wrote on octopus minds must lead to octopus ethics. I'm sorry if I got the title wrong. But um, yeah, do you, could you explain a little bit what the concerns you have are with the ethics around farming octopuses for food and also using them in lab experiments? Well, octopuses have become the, the research subject du jour unfortunately, and um, that is because they are so interesting. So that it's, you know, being intelligent and complex and interesting and very different as octopuses are, puts a price on their head. People want to know, know more about them. And unfortunately, that takes the form of highly invasive terminal research uh, with them. And in addition to the research aspect, now there is a push to farm them, factory farm them, if you will. And again, uh, this, is, this is a matter that really is of great concern for obvious reasons. Factory farming is not something that should be done to any, any being. 
including octopuses. So we, we're faced with a, an issue here where there's a lot of scientific interest in the octopus. And unfortunately, that scientific interest, as it normally does, takes the form of highly invasive and terminal research. And, and that's the problem. Yes, octopuses, as I'm sure your listeners know, are invertebrates, they're cephalopods, they're mollusks, and they reason, they think about their world, and they flash their moods on their skin. So they are highly engaged and attuned animals. So many people know about famous octopus like Inky, who in 2016 managed to escape the aquarium in New Zealand walked across a floor and then put himself through a long pipe to escape into the bay. And other people may know about octopus on the seafloor who take coconut shells and make them into little shelters for themselves, which is a form of tool use. But sometimes people don't think quite so much about the everyday non-famous octopuses, but all of them are smart and feeling creatures. So as you probably know, the brain is distributed in the octopus all through the arms. Um, they're not correctly called tentacles, but they are arms and octopus. So there's distributed cognition going on. And when an arm reaches out to explore the environment, that is an act of thinking. So mm -hmm. my suggestion is not that we should only care about animals that can be described this way in terms of emotion and cognition, but certainly the case is clear with octopus that they should not be laboratory animals, they should not be consumed. And I feel as strongly as Lori does about this. Do you mean not, not consumed just from when they've been farmed or at all? Well, I don't think that they should be consumed at all because the act of catching them causes great distress and suffering. And obviously consuming an animal means you're ending that animal's life. And there's, there's absolutely no reason for it. This is not subsistence. This is a delicacy. I agree with Lori, although I would add one thing. As an anthropologist, I know that there are whole cultures like Greece and Italy and many more in which cooking and preparing octopus are very central. That's something that I don't do. I don't eat octopus. I hope many fewer people will eat octopus into the future. I don't think that they should be eaten. But for me, I draw an absolute and complete ethical line in terms of eating them alive. And in that case, especially, I have no patience with any argument about tradition or cultural tradition. So right, I think that eating them is not what should be happening. But eating them alive, as happens in a number of cultures, including our own, is something that has to be stopped immediately. And I would have to agree that this, the argument about, well, culture, you know, culture is something that I'm not an anthropologist, um, but we create culture and culture can be changed. We've seen cultural traditions of all kinds over the course of human history change. So just because something is cultural doesn't mean that it is intractable or even justified. And so that's my view of this in terms of the fact that eating octopus, uh, what you know is known as galamata in, in Italy, for instance, is considered a cultural practice. It, that, that doesn't it doesn't really hold a lot of weight when it comes to, the, the issue of the suffering of the animals. One of the coolest things about working with Lori is that uh, in my guesstimation, I would say we agree about 95% of the time and sometimes the 5% is the fun part. And <laughs> I, ideally I am completely with you, Lori. And I think what, what I'm saying is that the only place I might disagree is I do think that in some cases octopus is eaten as subsistence instead of a delicacy. And I hope that changes. And I think we should all work together to find ways to make that change. But right now the reality is that they are eaten. And so if I'm going to hire, hierarchicalize, if you will, or rank my concerns, I would put wanting to stop the practice of live eating first and very much work hard on the questions of aquaculture second.
I would certainly agree. And I and I think the the you know when it comes to the the research done and the invasive research that's done, I mean that clearly is done out of uh, curiosity, and uh, that's that there is really in my mind no justification for that at all. You know, it was very interesting when I started out doing this work. I had the assumption that live eating of octopus was something that happened elsewhere because I first learned about it as associated with Korean and Japanese subcultural traditions. And then I was doing some work for National Public Radio or NPR here in the United States. And I was assigned to call restaurants in LA and DC and New York and found out, wow, live eating of octopus is happening here. So it's not something that happens over there. And of course, that's the same thing we're dealing with with factory farming, right? People often point at other cultures when in fact in the West we are doing all kinds of horrendous and cruel acts to animals in factory farming. Some of the major nurseries for octopus, if you will, or or breeding centers are right here in the United States. Yes, that's true. I read about one quite recently in, in Hawaii that's turning itself into a tourist attraction. Oh, Kanaloa, I think its name is. I believe that's right. I, yeah, yes. I've yeah, I've I've also read about them, and I think they yeah they give tours of of where they keep the octopuses and things, and it's it's a little strange. Are they breeding them for but, food? What's the uh, purpose of the breeding? Uh, yeah, it's I think it's uh it's for food. Okay. I think so. Um, oh, I have that's to, definitely I have to true. Yeah, it's scaling up um, octopus cuisine, as they call it. That's right. It sounds as though like octopus is actually becoming more prevalent in the diets of yeah Americans or Westerners who whose cultures have not previously inclu- included octopus as like a mainstay of the diet. And not that it is a mainstay anyway, but still that it's a delicacy that is like widely consumed. And so maybe like against that sort of background, I want to ask if your sense of the attention that cephalopod intelligence is getting or the this newish recognition of the intelligence of octopuses and other cephalopods, other non-vertebrates, if that is maybe providing a kind of like model of ways of thinking of intelligence outside of the very narrow ways we've tended to think about intelligence with just ourselves and then maybe in some cases branching out a little bit wider, but still in quite a narrow way. And so it seems kind of disheartening then if this on the one hand this trend is happening that there's a greater recognition of this kind of intelligence and it's not coupled with a greater respect if at the same time we're seeing an increase of appetite or a disregard for this kind of life or intelligence so I wonder if you could talk about that so maybe I mean there are lots of things you could say maybe I have some parts of it wrong or maybe it's more complicated than the picture I'm sketching here but I'm curious what your impressions are on that it is a very disheartening situation to see great public fascination with octopus intelligence that occurs at the same time as an increase in people wanting to eat octopus. One way that I try to make sense of this is through research that shows, this is one particular study that was done in the U.S., that if you talk to a group of people about some type of animal and you describe their life a little bit with one group, and then you talk about that same animal with a second group, but you specify that that animal is a food animal, is consumed in whatever culture, the estimation of that animal's intelligence and like moral worth goes down. It's Mm -hmm. very interesting that I believe people work very hard to ignore evidence about intelligence when they're eating the animal. So in other words, there's a disconnect. People write children's books about octopus and there are documentaries and videos about octopus tool using and their chromatophores which flash their moods on their skin. But there's this very big firewall that comes down in people's understanding when they go to the restaurant and they open the menu and they order an octopus. It's a weird compartmentalization 
that seems to happen. And of course, it happens very widely with many farmed animals, including chickens and pigs and cows. Yes, it seems that, uh, and I would uh, reiterate what what Barbara just said, the, the problem is that the education, the knowledge of how complex and sensitive other animals are, be it an octopus or um, a sheep or a chicken or a pig or a cow, that's only, that that is um, necessary, but certainly doesn't seem to be, unfortunately, uh, sufficient to change the hearts and minds of people. As Barbara mentioned, there's some very, very strong psychological drivers that we have to, to make it easy for us to do things that we like to do, like eat other animals that are tasted to us. So while it is the case that people may know more about octopus and, and it, it, that's only um, it, at the most half the picture, there's another part of this that's that seems to be missing. And I think it has to do with the fact that, that we have very powerful ways of justifying our, our behavior after the fact. Do you think as well that it's just because of the sort of alienness of octopuses that maybe that sort of does help with that compartmentalization that people do or that, you know, or living with that contradiction in, you know, them knowing they're, intel- they're intelligent creatures and then still wanting to eat them. Just because, I, you know, I, I feel like maybe with animal welfare concerns around farmed animals, I think it's easier for people to kind of grasp the welfare aspects because they're looking at, at mammals in, you know, in some cases and also because they're like land animals and things, it kind of makes it easier to make some sense of their welfare needs but maybe maybe even though people understand that octopuses are intelligent the welfare aspects of eating them and farming them in particular hasn't kind of hit home because they just don't translate the understanding of the intelligence into a welfare concern well i would say that from from my work on how we look at farmed animals like pigs and cows chickens sheep that again, I think that um, there is knowledge of who these animals are, what they go through in factory farms, and yet it does not seem to move the needle as much as we would like it to. So there is, it's it's not so much that, you know, yeah, octopus are very different than a pig or a cow. They're not mammals. We can't read them as easily as we can another mammal. Uh, but the fact is, is that um, this is how we treat any other animals who we eat. There's uh, a psychology here that that goes much deeper than just unawareness of the fact that these are sentient beings. One thing that I have found that is a positive aspect of this kind of conversation is in my talks to the public and writing for the public, storytelling about individual animals does seem to help. We've been talking about octopuses and pigs and chickens and sheep, but one thing that I think both Lori and I do is to talk about individuals. And one reason why I started out earlier in this conversation talking about Inky is because I've learned that it does seem to some degree to really light up people's brains when they hear individual life histories of animals or see particular videos. And one thing I do when I talk about octopuses is I tell a story that I borrow from one of David Attenborough's nature documentaries where in the sea, um, it's off of an African country, there's a shark that's in the process of attacking an octopus. And the octopus looks like he or she is about to lose a life, but in fact then takes several of his or her arms and stuffs them into the shark's gills. So the shark essentially is faced with a choice to let go, move away, or to suffocate. And the shark, being an intelligent fish, moves away and the octopus swims off. And I have found, not only with octopus, but also with pigs and chickens and sheep, 
that the impact of my work is greater when I talk about animals in this way. And perhaps to some degree, although as Laurie said, I agree, um, necessary but not sufficient, this helps a little. Yes, and I think the, the, the key here is for people to think about Inky and think about all of the, the other individuals uh, and, and generalize that to the hundreds of millions who are killed every, every year in factory farms. Um, that is the task, is, is to, to make that leap. And anything we can do to help people to do that, I think, would be, would be helpful. Yes, in my last book, I write about Esther the Wonder Pig, whom you may know is a pig that lives with a family in Canada and is incredibly smart and emotional. And I talk about Mr. Henry Joy, the chicken, who was a therapy animal, apparently at least partially by his own choice, just loving to be with people. And I ask exactly that question. Can we scale up and yes. think, think about the pictures we've all seen of hundreds and thousands of birds stuffed into a factory farm and the same with pigs. And to think that any of those animals in those miserable conditions would be just as sweet and loving and smart and, and compassionate and individual as these animals about whom I'm telling stories. And in the case of octopuses with farming them, of course, the risk is if that is allowed to take place on an industrial scale, it's, it's also happening because wild octopus stocks, I don't want to say stocks because I know that's not the right word, wild, wild octopus populations are dwindling because of being overfished and fisheries that do catch octopus are like they're they're catching fewer and fewer octopus so that's why farming is becoming like a an avenue that industry wants to pursue and then there's the issue there of like the more they become available through farming the less well maybe maybe wild wild populations will recover but also maybe maybe they won't maybe they'll continue to be fished anyway well, you mentioned different contexts, and it was only fairly recently that I woke up to the fact that there are thousands of cephalopods, including octopuses, squids, and cuttlefish, that are held in a research laboratory, for example, at Woods Hole in Massachusetts, here in the States. And they, the scientists there are talking about them in highly excited terms about them being, quote, genetically tractable models, unquote. So octopus are being farmed for food as we have been discussing but they also are getting headlines here in the states and else, elsewhere as the new laboratory animal so that's concerning clearly it's very concerning as as i mentioned earlier i mean they basically have a price on their head as soon as we meaning our species discovers something interesting about another a member of another species then our our standard response to that is, okay, let's grab them, put them in a cage, cut them up, and take a completely reductionistic view and find out what makes them tick. That's what we do. That's, that's our scientific paradigm right now, with very few exceptions. And unfortunately, octopuses are fascinating beings, and they're going to be subject uh, to all the same kinds of invasive and terminal manipulations that other animals are are subject to uh, simply for being interesting. Could you explain a little bit more about the purpose of or like the ostensible purpose I guess of the kinds of things you're describing like the laboratory interest in in cephalopods and octopuses what kinds of scientific inquiry is motivating this? I can give you oh go ahead Laura. Oh no go ahead. I can give you two examples. There's interest in uh, biomedical models of limb generation or regeneration uh, okay. yeah. from the arms. And there's also a particularly idiosyncratic way in which cephalopods use enzymes to edit genetic information. So we are used to a model in which DNA to RNA, RNA to proteins happens. But with cephalopods, there's a particularly different pathway that uses enzymes to kind of edit RNA. 
and this makes them of great interest in terms of genetic uh, manipulation and genetic models and those are two particular examples that um, I think are paramount and there may be more. Yes, I would agree. Do you think that there's any way that those kinds of questions or investigations can go forward without causing any real welfare issues for octopuses? Mm, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a six million dollar question, right? Because we could ask that about our just our entire scientific enterprises. Can yeah. we do this? Can we find things out without causing harm? And the answer to that is um, in some cases, yes, in some cases, no. But we haven't really um, uh, come to grips with the fact that there may be things that we can't know because it's really not justified or, or the, the weight of what we have to do to these other animals to find that out is just, is just too much, the moral weight. And at the same time, you know, we, we really don't try very hard. I mean, the paradigm in science right now is to do what your predecessor did. And as long as that continues and, and all the uh, rewards and contingencies in science go towards doing the same thing over and over and towing the line, it's going to be very difficult to break out of that. Um, and we, we must. We must if we're going to do science in an ethical manner. Two things to add, if I might. Uh, a lot of biomedical scientists, and this includes cephalopod researchers, insist over and over again that ethical protections are in place for their animals. And we know that this is simply not true. We have um, ethicists writing in peer-reviewed literature, not only about octopuses, but about the failure of the so-called protection system in federal laboratories, university laboratories, to really put any teeth at all into ethical protection for these animals. And of course, we know that octopuses here in the States are not even protected at all. The second thing I'd like to say is that a lot of your questions have been couched in issues of animal welfare, and that's a, a, a useful discourse to have. But we can also ask about animal rights. Is mm -hmm. it a fact that these animals should be confined at all because don't they have a right to freedom from pain and also freedom from forced captivity. So there's a toggling back and forth that I do in talking about animal welfare in some ways that's important, but it's also important to think beyond animal welfare. You know, the old idea that does the animal need a bigger, better cage or does the animal need to be out of the cage? I couldn't agree more. That's, that's a very, very important point. And you know, animal welfare is really important. Uh, incremental changes in how an animal is treated can be important, but the underlying assumption in, in an animal welfare approach is that we can use these animals and we should treat them the best we can while we're exploiting them. And that's an assumption of animal welfare that is certainly not the case with animal rights. That was one of my questions which I sort of originally thought of about maybe the thresholds for what's considered to be a good safeguard for welfare like maybe it's sort of too low because I know in Europe octopuses are protected under the Animal Welfare Act but I guess the idea is oh well if we're protecting their welfare we're kind of improving things just in small ways then it's never maybe never going to go far enough if that's the protection that's there for them and it needs to it needs to move on from that to rights. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, what happens is we gerrymander, we, we decide who gets protections, who doesn't, and typically those animals who do not get protections are those that we use a lot, mice, rats, rodents, uh, zebra, you know, zebrafish, farmed animals, all of these animals, if we actually gave them strong protections, let alone rights, or acknowledge their rights, it, it would be extraordinarily uh, inconvenient for our species. So we don't give it to them. And I think that's, that's what the bottom line comes down to, is we are judge and jury of who gets protections and who doesn't. The rights and welfare distinction is really important here, and I'm glad that you brought it out more. So it seems like from the pieces that I've read of yours, on NPR, and then also the, the response that you both wrote together to the uh, Jennifer Mather paper. 
I'm not sure if I got her first name right, but um, yes, Mather. In these, it seems like you're also advancing a kind of welfareist gradual step argument. As far as your activism around cephalopods and other, I guess, other non-human species, maybe not even limited to, to octopuses, maybe the, what you really want to push for is a more rights-based defense. But in other contexts, you know that it might be more prudential or pragmatic to take the welfareist approach and just push the boundary further? Or are you trying to take one stance or the other more consistently? Or is there a place for both as you see your scholarship and your work? Do you want to go first, Laurie? Sure. Um, well, I clearly adhere to an animal rights perspective, period. I think animal welfare is important. And I think that uh, it is something that has to be attended to even within the realm of discourse about rights, um, that we just need to, to understand what it is that other animals are experiencing, what we're putting them through. So welfare-based arguments are not, uh, they're not unimportant. They're, they're clearly extremely important. Um, and that's why I make them in certain venues. But uh, from my point of view, they... Are they serve, but are are not the the end all of what really is, uh, in my view, violation of any animal's rights to bodily liberty, bodily integrity. It's just that there are different ways to get there, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I I think that it's all important. But in the end, I and I've said this many times in 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 papers, um, without rights. Other animals will never, ever enjoy the quality of life and the protections that they really deserve. I think that I try to be as strategic as I can, depending on the audience to whom I'm speaking. And that isn't to say that I feel pulled off the point of animal rights, which I think is incredibly important. But I do think that we are so far from seeing other animals as having intrinsic value that sometimes I try to become a little more practical and just talk in animal welfare terms, but not because I don't think that animal rights is the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. So if I think about zoos and aquaria, for example, which is an area that I've been focusing on increasingly, I'm increasingly suspicious of and unhappy with what's called the ambassador model, which applies to octopuses as much as it does to any other animal. The idea that we're going to take an animal from the wild, keep it in captivity, it's an ambassador so that people will come and look at him or her and become fascinated and suddenly become interested in conservation. Of course, on a welfare model, then, if you have a really large tank, a lot of enrichment for the octopus, etc., you're doing a good job. On a rights perspective, you're not, because this animal has been taken from his or her home and is in captivity. Mm-hmm. And so I really toggle between the two, because I think they're both important. But practically... There's some audiences, and this is unfortunate, but I lose right away if I talk about animal rights from the beginning until I start to explain what does that really mean. Mm-hmm. The word or the term is suspect, and therefore how I enter into the conversation, because I want to have a conversation with people, meet them a little bit where they're at, and then talk about various open possibilities that we can all consider as I learn also along with other people so that I want to have an open conversation rather than sort of talking at people. So this is why I try to go back and forth between the terms, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah yes. Great. Unfortunately, I, I actually do have to jump on another meeting. So I have to uh, jump off. I really want to thank you for for all of this and Barbara it's always a pleasure and we have to do more <laughs> I agree Laurie I agree <laughs> well thanks very much Laurie for joining us I think we got you for a little bit longer than you had originally planned so I'm so, glad about that <laughs> so interesting I look forward to hearing hearing the podcast when it comes out yeah, thank yeah, you excellent. Thanks thank you so much for your time it was nice to talk to you thanks, thanks Laurie thank you bye I have a question that <laughs> 
now that Lori's gone, just kidding, but it is for Barbara. <laughs> um, um, so I didn't read anything from this book, but I saw when I was looking at the books that you had written, you'd all, and, and also I think it mentions it in, in your bios in a couple of places, that you've also written about grief with animals and how animals express grief and other emotions. So maybe it's not relevant for cephalopods, but I wonder to what extent, and I think Claire had a question along these lines as well, well, first, well, this question has two parts. One is that I want you to talk about that work as well it, with with animal emotion or non-human animal emotion and to bring it to this conversation as much as is possible. Is there a reason that we should explore the the possibility of, of different kinds of emotions for animals that are much different from us? Is there an intersection of these things? And maybe also you can talk about the, the other work that you've done with other kinds of animals on grief. Yeah, so I've been engaged in writing and speaking for the public since I stopped my university teaching and retired early to do this work. And the book that so far has reached the public, I would say, most successfully is How Animals Grieve. And in that book, I give a definition of animal grief, which involves a survivor animal who is in some way acting very differently for a fairly prolonged period after a death of a relative or partner or friend or family member, social withdrawal, for example, or failure to eat or sleep or some species specific vocalization, posture, behavior that indicates something more than stress, but deep emotion. And typically we think of grief as associated with animals like whales and dolphins, elephants, chimpanzees, dogs and cats. My work broadened this out to consider farmed animals. So that led me to ask some questions about emotions in all kinds of animals. And I became super interested in the question of emotion in invertebrates. Now I have seen no credible evidence that there's anything like grief in octopuses. That's very different than saying that there's no grief in octopuses. We just haven't seen it. We don't really know what to look for. Many octopuses, although not all, are pretty solitary in their adult lives. But what I can say is that the system of chromatophores distributed across an octopus's body tells us that they have an inner life of moods and feelings. The times that I've spent with octopuses have been in aquariums and I've talked a little bit about that. I have mixed feelings about octopuses in captivity but in one aquarium I watched an octopus be given a novel enrichment puzzle a series of tubes with live well maybe not live but with shrimp inside and this octopus changed color from a lighter red to a deeper red indicating engagement enjoyment that I saw very clearly with excited movement of her arms and spending time with this puzzle for almost 30 minutes. And that mood was flashed on her skin. In the second encounter with a large male octopus, I was invited behind the scenes to do octopus enrichment myself. The aqua aquarium person fully believed that on a limited basis, having octopus meet new people behind the scenes again, not with the public, is an enrichment activity. And people will feel differently about this. But I saw all kinds of flashing colors and excitement in this octopus who wrapped an arm around my arm and tasted me with his brain. It was quite fascinating. So we know that there's emotion going on in these animals. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more? Sorry, Claire, if you have other questions, please jump in. No, go ahead with your one. Can you talk more about other, well, octopuses and also just more about this expression? Lots of animals will use different, not expressions, but just markings to indicate like stay away or something very, very basic in terms of predator-prey dynamics. But the kind of coloration changing you're talking about, it seems like the point is that it's at a different kind of level and that it's more expressive in specific ways and for people who, who don't know about this phenomenon, can you explain this a little bit more? Well, there's fascinating videos online, uh, Roger Hanlon's videos, among others, that show wild octopuses 
who do this immensely fascinating camouflage. So you'll see um, a white type of bush on the sea floor, and then suddenly what you think is just a bush resolves into a sort of brown octopus that had changed his or her color to match surroundings, which of course is an evolved strategy to hide from predators or to stay safe. And I'm not an octopus biologist, but my understanding is that this, the chromatophores are the skin cells that allow for these changes, that it's not simply just about, say, how to survive in the sea, but the chromatophores do also reflect inner emotional changes. Now, my experience with this is fairly limited, but we know that wild octopus biologists also are tracking what happens when octopuses, for example, are courting or um, engaged in, in aggressive encounters. And there are certainly color changes involved with those. I wrote a short article for Scientific American recently about deception in the animal world. And there's fascinating examples of cuttlefish who seem to control the one side of their body being one type of color versus the other as they are courting. Um, but the idea is that cuttlefish like octopus can use these color changes in ways that are strategic and emotional. I just looked up the word and, and I, I misunderstood. So it's chromatophore, which you said. I thought when you were saying it before, you were referring to like a class of animals that had the, this description. Oh, no, but no. no, it's like the cells are chromatophore. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. I don't know if there's if not a way to link to this article in Scientific American because I learned all of this and I wrote about it. And the example of strategic deception in cuttlefish using chromatophores is absolutely fascinating. I have a question which goes back a little bit to when you were discussing animal grief and also earlier when you and Laurie spoke about trying to get people to connect from an individual animal like Inky the octopus and then sort of scaling that up to the whole the whole species. So this isn't very academic but there's this website called the Dodo. I don't know you probably have seen it and their, their whole aim is to show people videos of animals being joyful and playful and things and um, cows looking after their babies and that sort of thing to kind of try and make people see that um, these animals with like feelings and like complex social lives and that sort of thing and therefore worthy of um, our respect and given the best lives they can be given. Do you feel like that kind of thing could have an impact just like that ongoing sort of exposure to seeing individual animals interacting with each other in these ways that we can kind of relate to? Well, sure. I've been interviewed by the Dodo a number of times and I understand what they're doing. I think that it's always important to be very careful about the types of scientific diagnoses we make from individual videos or images. When I talk about my work with grief, for example, I was invited to give a TED talk in Vancouver, Canada last year that gave me a, a really new international platform for talking about this work. And I talked about the orca Tahlequah, who became very famous for carrying her dead daughter on her body for 17 days and a thousand miles here in North America. And this big discussion that devolved around this of was this stress, was it grief, or what was it? And I came down on the side of thinking that it expressed grief, as we know cetaceans are clearly able to do. And here was an example that, as I said, lasted 17 days, and there's all kinds of reasons why we would want to call this grief. By contrast, there's sometimes a single image or a single 20-minute video that's put up, and I'm not talking about the dodo specifically, but just by mainstream media of all kinds, and people will say, oh, look, that's grief. And you know, you have to be really careful to be scientific and credible. If you want to convince people, and all the skeptics out there who throw the A word at me, anthropomorphism, you're just projecting your own feelings onto other animals, you want to be sure you've got the facts right, you've got a good contextual case. So I want to be very careful about how I talk about grief and what evidence I have for grief and not just use images and videos. 
except when they're connected with a very strong set of observations and scientific credibility. I guess just to like push on that a bit, because I feel that maybe in terms of like, well, I don't know. I I mean, I'm not, I, I don't have like any expertise in like human behavior change, but you know, we are strongly motivated around a lot of things by our emotions is how we react to to what we see and I feel like my interests and like concerns around animal rights and animal welfare have stemmed so much from an emotional place and especially since getting a dog and I feel that that's really taught me to like look at animals really differently so I wonder if actually for sort of the scientific community obviously you want to be extremely careful about what you say and do around or like what claims you're making around feelings that animals have but then on the other hand I wonder like I've because also in in philosophy we have this you know strong debates around anthropomorphism and things and and sort of avoiding that and but then I, I wonder why it's like such a bad thing in some ways as well to slightly anthropomorphize some animals um just as lay people because I think it can be quite a powerful way of getting people to feel empathy with other animals and to feel like that they're deserving of rights and they're deserving of protection in ways that maybe just for them scientific arguments might not might not do I think for example the image of the orca that you that you mentioned who carried its dead calf around for so long it was just that feeling like I think I feel like maybe that was very powerful image and a powerful emotional response that people had to it rather than being convinced that it showed scientifically that this animal was experiencing grief okay first of all I would say um, her grief and not its grief just one thing about language I would add there for helping us think about animals but I, um, I, I may have led inadvertently into a confusion because yeah of course I mean my whole work over many years in my books in my TED talk is predicated on saying we need to talk about anthropomorphism and it is not the evil thing that people make it out to be because we are connected in many ways to these animals and we can come to understand them through connecting with them and thinking about their lives as Jane Goodall has said with chimpanzees for many years but think about what anthropomorphism really is saying the definition is that you're projecting emotions that are human emotions your own emotions onto other animals and what I'm saying is that the very evidence of Tahlequah the orca and many others shows that we don't own love and grief they're not human they belong to all of us to many 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 animals and that's why anthropomorphism is suspect because it's not projecting our emotions that we own onto other animals it's recognizing that love and grief is widespread in the animal community and we can learn that by linking together images stories and scientific credibility and that's what i do because i'm a scientist that's such a good way of explaining the sort of issues of anthropomorphism actually i wouldn't have been able to like put it so um so well like that but yeah i think that's that's really interesting definitely not so much what you hear uh, from people who who worry about projecting onto animals, I don't. I haven't really heard anyone say that specifically. Like, oh, well, it's actually just about recognition rather than projection. Yeah, well, that's what I've basically been doing, um, especially with the TED Talk, which was a very big, you know, important opportunity for me. And in all the interviews since, is asking people to think about what you're really saying when you're making a charge of anthropomorphism, which has been the major charge by certain scientists against my work. So I really have to walk that line. I really have to be very sure that I'm using a clear definition and that I'm amassing evidence. And at the same time, the point of doing that is to say that I'm not convinced by these counter arguments that dismiss this kind of work on animal emotion as mere anthropomorphism because that misses the boat. What you've just said has made me think about emotions and animals in a way that probably you've thought about it, but it's a, it's a sort of an insight for me that I had not thought about before. But this flipping the anthrop or flipping around what anthropomorphism, what the accusation is, and showing the problem with it 
this means that you can, so instead of taking human emotions as the starting point and trying to like recognize ourselves in other animals, like the only emotions that exist would be the human emotions that we are familiar with, that we experience. Instead, now you can think of looking for other emotions that we don't have, that there could be a world of emotions that are not human emotions. We're not taking ourselves as the starting place to start to recognize whatever happiness, joy, grief, etc. But instead, maybe this opens up thinking to a wider range of expression than we have. Yeah, it's it's interesting because how I mean, my question I ask myself is how would I, as a human being, go about recognizing and talking about an emotion in an animal? that had no analog to ours. Mm. I believe that is possible, as you've just said. I think what you just said made a lot of sense. I also ask myself, how would we then see it and know it and describe it because we are such linguistic creatures? Mm -hmm. Lori has said some very powerful things that are in some ways parallel about should we not consider the fact that in some ways orcas, for example, could be more intelligent than we are. Mm -hmm. And she has a really good argument if you have a chance to ask her about that. So I think it's very hard to get away from human, human standards that we are not trying to read the minds of these animals when we're talking about grief and love. We are looking at the visible expression of behaviors that at one and the same time, we can recognize because we have human emotions that we also want to think may not be exactly identical, but we're going to call them grief and love because that's the vocabulary that we have for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Unless you have anything else to finish off with, Claire, maybe this is a good place to leave it just out of respect for time. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a good good spot to leave it as well that was really really interesting barbara thank you so much for talking to us yeah thank you yeah, thanks so much i had a good time bye. Bye. bye so that's the end of season one of earth philosophy thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed the first season we'll be back with more episodes soon and if you have suggestions of people you'd like us to talk to or topics you'd like us to cover in the in the upcoming episodes please get in touch with us you can email us at earth to philosophy at gmail.com you can visit our website which is www.earthtophilosophy.com and claire why don't you let people know how they can get in touch with you yeah you can find me on twitter um, i'm at hamlet claire um, so i'll be i'll be tweeting about the episodes on there as well and you can find me via my website, which is andreagammon.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope that you join us for a second season.